Carol Booth. Well, more or less. If you have as what Betty calls my turtle, then it's all right. <laughs> now, as Jesus stands and cries out, and I want you to notice that he cries out, he literally shouts over the din of the crowd. Is anyone thirsty? Come to me and drink. I will give you a belly full of water. Was the bowl of water making its way from Siloam through the water gate when he cried out? Was the priest pouring the libation on the altar when Jesus shouted? Had all the pomp and ceremony ceased when Jesus made his declaration? We don't know, but the effect of Christ's remark must be sensed. Surely you must understand the electricity that went through that audience when he stood up and said that. For that Jewish audience, with all its festive, joyous focus on the cultic, on the ritual, on the ceremonial, on the observation of Torah, all the attention directed to the altar, the temple, the water, this Galilean upstart stands and declares, I have the water. Water pouring from a bowl, water running down the altar, burnt sacrifice. Jesus says, I have the water, not this water which trickles away to nothing, not this puddle at the base of the altar, not this, but the water I supply, the rivers pouring forth from me, the living water, life-giving water, water which gushes, gushes from who I am and what I am about to do. And the light, light from those gigantic lampstand menorahs, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Not this light, not these bowls of flaming, shining to the perimeters of Jerusalem. Not this light, but me, myself, the light I am, the light I give, the light of the world. Notice that... I am formula again. The I am that I am. Tell them, I am have sent thee. Moses hears from the theophonic bush in Exodus. I am, but I am the light of the world. I am that I am incarnate. I am. Now we step back and we ask ourselves why. Why does Jesus upstage these two Jewish rituals? And why does John alone record it? Well, when you ask those kinds of questions of the Word of God, you are taking a step beyond the obvious, superficial, everyday, average, layperson reading of the Bible. As if you get your five or ten or fifteen minutes in and you've served your time and now you can go on. 
When you start to ask the questions of why is this here and why does Jesus do it, you are starting to ask the questions which are penetrating back into the mind of God who ordained it and the Son of God who performed it. You are starting to ask the penetrating theological questions of a text. Now, I know that that's not particularly popular. And I know that the average Protestant pulpit doesn't want you to think. It wants you to look at the English text and take the obvious words that connote something to you about your world and your lifestyle. And now you can do it better because you were here this morning to sing about rah-rah Jesus. And I'm not being uh, disrespectful. I'm being critical in the best constructive sense of the way of the word for the trivialization of the word of God in our generation. And if there is, in fact, a famine of the hearing of the word of God, even in evangelical and reformed pulpits, it's because we have domesticated God and the word of God down to the dumb level, Bible for dummies level, of the obvious, the superficial, and the trite. You don't even have to go to high school to do that. Any youth for Christ, you know, rah-rah kid can do that. Why would you pay money to go to seminary to do that? But when you come to understand that the Word of God is deep and rich, and that the reasons that these narratives are uniquely here, and Jesus does things which are unique and never were done before. When you start to ask yourself the why reasons, and you're getting beyond the Bible for dummies level, you're starting to say, there's something of my life here. Christ is telling me something about my life in this text I want to find my life hidden with Christ in God in this passage. So as we ask that question of John chapter 7, the answer that comes back is the Christological, soteriological, and eschatological response. The dualism here is between the Jewish ritual of an age which is passing away and the dawn of an age which is coming and has arrived in the announcement of Jesus. I am the light of the world. I am the source of living water. The age of ceremony and custom and tradition is closing down for an age in which Jesus is the center and the salvation he brings is the heart and the eschatological glory which he holds out, that is your hope, not a ritual on a mountain called Zion in a city named Jerusalem. Not the light of Jewish celebration, not the lamps of the menorah, but Jesus, the I am light. That former light is finished, is passing away, it is done, its purpose is accomplished. It has fulfilled itself in the one who is its fullness. 
The true light is in the world, enlightening every believing man and woman and child. The age to come dawns with the coming of this light. Once again, not the water, not the water of the Jewish libation ritual, not the trickle at the altar, but Jesus, the I am fountain of living water. That water, that former water is finished, passing away, its purpose is accomplished. The water which the I am gives, if a man drink, he will never thirst again, and this spring will become a gushing river within him the age to come which dawns with the coming of the gushing of the Spirit. Jesus stands on the last day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, to announce to Israel that he wants her to know that her salvation, her true thanksgiving, her true light, her true drinking fountain is in him. He is the end, the tilos, the goal of the law, tabernacles, is accomplished in him. So John, concerned to detail how Jesus fulfills the Jewish ceremonials, John records this story so that you and I and all who read will be confronted with the Jesus who displaces the old. Displacement and replacement by way of fulfillment. The Jewish festivals are passing away. The Feast of Tabernacles is passing away because Jesus, the true tabernacle, Jesus has pitched his tent in our midst. The history of the ceremonial law has unfolded to its fulfillment. No more ceremonial law. The Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus as the fountain, Jesus as the light, after him any water Any other water is poison. Any other light is darkness. But I said the theme of this Johannine eschatology is also here. From the standpoint of the New Testament writers, the eschatology which has to do with the arrival of that which the prophets inquired after and searched for diligently, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1.10, Hence, the New Testament fulfillment always has an eschatological dimension. That which has been the object of prophetic hope arrives. Their forward-looking perspective is built into the Feast of Tabernacles. All through the wilderness, they looked forward to completing their sojourn, to folding up their tents, to taking up residence in permanent homes. And even when they occupied the land in the observance of the Feast of Tabernacles, they recalled the past in order to yearn for the future. Palestine was not an end in itself. Israel was not the land. Tabernacles reminded the Jews that the land was the heavenly Canaan. They were still pilgrims, still sojourners in a wilderness, still looking for that city where God himself abides forever. Furthermore, the commemoration of the final harvest in the Feast of Tabernacles also had its own eschatological ramifications. The gathering in of the final crops was a token of the final gathering in of the people of God. 
The Old Testament prophets in particular took the historical past and projected it into the eschatological future. This is exactly what Zechariah does in chapter 14, verse 16. Listen to what he says. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep, to keep what? To keep the Feast of Tabernacles, the eschatological gathering of the nations, the ingathering of the people of God, the harvest feast, the thanksgiving harvest of the nations has arrived. Zechariah's vision has been fulfilled in the coming of Christ to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and be the light to the nations of the world. Jesus brings that harvest. He pours out the Spirit who is the means of bringing in men so that Pentecost is a spirit pouring out the first fruits of the harvest of the mission of the church. Children from every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven are going to be gathered into this garner, this heavenly garner. John records Jesus' remark at the Feast of Tabernacles because John wants us to understand that Jesus inaugurates the great ingathering of the harvest of the people of God from all nations. And the Feast of Tabernacles is truly observed as people come to Christ. If any man, not just a Jew, but anyone, Jew or Gentile, anyone who believes in any nation is part of the great harvest Jesus gathers to the Father through the Spirit. Notice also Jesus says, I am the light of the world, the light of the menorah reached only to the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus' light is for Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the earth. The drama here in John 7 is a drama in which we participate. Where Jesus has proclaimed the nature of of the new age which he brings. It's the age in which the Old Testament symbols and rituals find their accomplishment so that we never long to go back to them. For having Christ, we have all. We have the reality. Jesus directs all the meaning of tabernacles to himself. The booth, he is the true tabernacle. The water, he is the living water. The light, he is the light of the world. In him, all is accomplished for us. For us, sojourners, pilgrims of the end of the age. Dwelling in these temporary booths, which we call bodies. Longing for the resurrection of the spirit body, the body perfectly subject to the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Do we thirst? You know we do. Jesus says, come and drink. He puts himself at the center of our desperation, and that is where we must put him. No sipping at this fountain, drinking great draughts, great draughts, drinking the drama of his person, his precious person and work. Drama 
of his fulfilling the Feast of Tabernacles, standing there with that crowd and listening to your Savior say, I am the center of your drama. Our life is in Christ, our fountain, our stream, our light, our glory. God, the Son, says to you and to me, thirsty ones, come, come and drink from me, more satisfying than water in the desert, more thirst-quenching than water poured out at the altar. Believe, and rivers shall flow from your soul. Rivers shall flow from your superabundant soul. God, the Son, says to you and to me, walkers in darkness, come to the light and let my light shine upon you, more brilliant than the light of a menorah, more radiant than the lights of Jerusalem, more glorious than the light of fire, pillar fire in that wilderness. Follow me and possess the light of the world to come. Glory in superabundance. Now, John chapter 7 and 8 are actually a concatenated unit, and by that I mean they are taken together. And one of the reasons that you know that these two chapters belong together is location. The unity of the narrative and dialogue in these chapters occurs in a single location. It is the recurrence of the temple locus in chapter 7, verse 14, chapter 28, verse 20, I'm sorry, chapter 7, 14, verse 28 of chapter 7, and verse 37, chapter 8, verse 20, and 59. You will notice that each of those verses indicates that Jesus is in the temple. You will notice also that Jesus goes up to the feast in 710, which means he's going up to Jerusalem, going up to the temple. And in chapter 8, verse 59, Jesus goes out from the temple in Jerusalem. So we have an inclusio around 710 and 859. He is in the temple and stays in the temple until he leaves the temple in verse 59 of chapter 8. And that means he is going out from the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 8, verse 59. So, chapters 7 and 8 are occurring at the same time, within the same time frame. Now, others have noticed that there is a remarked buildup of vocabulary here that 7 and 8 are actually pointing ahead to 9 because in chapter 9, when Jesus heals the man born blind, where is he sent? If you look at verse 11 of chapter 9, where is he sent after Jesus heals him? He's sent to wash in the pool of Siloam. That's what that water is to be used for. Not to be poured out at an altar, but to be cleanse those who have been renewed and united to the fulfiller of the feast, Christ himself. So there's enough evidence to treat chapter 7 and 8 
and potentially chapter 9 as a unit. And it is this evidence which in part renders suspect the famous so-called pericope adultery, the pericope of the adulterous woman in John 7:53 to 8:11. Now in your Bibles, it may be bracketed or it may be at the bottom of the page. It may be in the margin in smaller typeset. But this story of the woman taken in adultery breaks up the flow of the drama of the Feast of Tabernacles. While the events surrounding the woman's apprehension, she was taken in the very act, 8-4, in the very act. She was set up. She absolutely set up. And the accusation of the woman, the accusation of the woman that she should be stoned. When was the last time the Jews stoned a woman for adultery? Even in Jesus' day. While the events surrounding the woman's apprehension and accusation appear contrived, they are contrived. Jesus' reaction is consistent with his character in the entire gospel corpus. And in that sense, the narrative appears to be a reflection of the authentic Jesus of Scripture. But though Jesus appears in character in this story, the story itself has all the marks of a flying wedge, an insert, a textus interruptus. Let's carefully review the flow of the events. Now, I want you to notice verse 37 of chapter 7. It's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Where is Jesus? He is in the temple in Jerusalem. His comment covers verses 37 and 38. Then in verse 39, we have an editorial comment of the gospel writer John himself. Then in verses 40 to 44, we have remarks of the crowd who heard his comment in the temple. In verses 45 to 52, the officers report to the chief priests with Nicodemus defending Jesus. The time of these events coterminous with the last day of the feast. Jesus is still in the temple. He is off camera or background on the scene at the spot where we left him. And we are placing the light on the Pharisees and our hostility to Jesus temporarily. This is a very good uh, Uh, movie director flashback technique or parallel technique. Only we're doing it narrative literarily. We're not doing it with uh, with, uh, Kodakolor or whatever they use. Now in verse 53, everyone goes home. Neat, but unnecessarily incidental. Verse 1 of chapter 8, Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives. Now why? Oh, you say it's an obvious contrast. He doesn't go home as everyone else goes home. But why the Mount of Olives? Why the Mount of Olives? Why does Jesus go out to the Mount of Olives? I want you to notice that the Mount of Olives nowhere appears in the Gospel of John. Nowhere. John is not concerned with the Mount of Olives. The betrayal of Jesus in chapter 18 is in a garden, verse 1. The burial and resurrection appearance of Jesus is in a garden, chapter 19, verse 41, and chapter 20, verse 15. Jesus' association with the Mount of Olives is found in the Synoptic Gospels. But it does not occur in the Synoptic Gospels until the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, an event recorded in John 12. John does record Jesus' triumphal entry. 
That's where the synoptics associate the Mount of Olives. He comes down from the Mount of Olives in his triumphal entry. John doesn't mention it again. So here's the mention of the Mount of Olives in a pericope, which is suspect because of its contrivance and is now shown to be anachronistic. It's self-serving. It provides a contrast with chapter 7, verse 53. It looks like it was invented. But it performs no function in the narrative about the adulterous woman. It is entirely incidental to that narrative. Take it out and you still got the narrative of the woman. Now notice, verse 2 of chapter 8. If Jesus comes to the temple again, we must ask why. The Feast of Tabernacles is over. Why visit the locus of the feast when the feast is over? If he went out and he comes again to the temple, why? And if he comes again, A2, what do we do with again in A12? There it is, A12, he comes again. If the author of 8.2 wants Jesus in the temple again, is he sensing that 8.12 already has Jesus there in the temple? Because, in fact, Jesus never left the temple. A night and a morning have not intervened between 7.37.38 and 8.12. Again, in 8.12 is a particle of continuity. It is a continuous action speech location word. It strongly suggests that again Jesus spoke on the last day of the feast, even as he had spoken in John 7, 37 and 38. In other words, the again is, and Jesus has said once more. Same occasion, same spot, same location, Jesus goes on with his speech. All this backstage action, which is camera on the backstage, is giving you a context for the hostility. But the story of what's happening at the feast goes on in 8-12. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I am the light of the world. So that word again in 8-12 ties together those two dramatic speeches of our Lord on the last day, the eschatological day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So read the narrative continuously. Read the narrative from 737. Now, on the last day, leave out 753 to 811 and read 812. Continuous with 737-38. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Now, on the last day, and again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. That's a natural, smooth, it's even a biblical theological, flow from Jesus' temple remark to his ongoing temple remark in 812. The pericope adultery interrupts the narrative. It interrupts the dramatic biblical theological flow. It drives a wedge into a smoothly unfolding Johannine theological pattern. It breaks the dramatic tension released in Jesus' stunning back-to-back declarations. If any man is thirsty, I am the light of the world. So I believe that the argument from the narrative and theological context displaces the pericope adultery. It does not fit with the narrative flow. And I haven't even specified that the vocabulary of this section doesn't match John's vocabulary. It is atypical Greek for John the writer. But, having made my unassailable case already, 
the text-critical case against the genuineness of 753 to 811 is overwhelming. The best recent study is Daniel Wallace, Dallas Theological Seminary, New Testament Studies, Volume 39, 1993, page 290 following, a masterpiece of analysis of the textual data on this particular section. This section is absent. It is missing. It is AWOL in P66 and P75. And I invite you to come up afterwards and look at the Greek text. Seamless Greek text. P66, 150 A.D. P75, 175 to 200 A.D. Seamless Greek text. No holes between chapter 6 and chapter 10 in either one of those manuscripts, two oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Here it is. Put your peepers on it. The pericope adultery is not in there. Case closed. Until somebody finds me a manuscript from 90 A.D. or 110 A.D. that's got it in it, and then Denison repents in sackcloth and ashes. He has to take back everything he said on this tape, and we redo the whole series. No, just this chapter. But I'm not done with the textual evidence, or I should say the non-textual evidence. All right, there is no appearance of this story in the Greek manuscripts up to 200 A.D., the two oldest corpi, Bodmer Papyri, there is no copy of this story in Codex Sinaiticus, which is one of the oldest Greek complete codices of the New Testament, dates from 300 A.D., we're 100 years after the Bodmer Papyri. There is no copy of this story in Codex Vaticanus, which is 350 A.D., another huge and fairly complete corpus of the whole Greek New Testament. There is no copy of this story in any of the Syriac versions of the New Testament in the 4th and 5th centuries. And none of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, Cyprian, knows anything of this story. And that takes us to the edge of the 4th century. In other words, there is no testimony or evidence for the pericope adultery until Codex Beza, which is 5th to 6th century, 400 A.D. And that means that somebody invented it and stuck it in there. And the reason for the invention is probably associated with canon law and cases of adulterous women in the early church. Though, that is very tentative and speculative. However, it is the most reasonable suggestion for the invention of the story, in my opinion. I therefore conclude my doubly unassailable case against the pericope adultery that on the basis of the present state of the evidence, both internal evidence and external evidence, it does not belong in the Gospel of John. The Apostle John did not write it. It was not given by inspiration of God. 
It was inserted by a later scribe, and it is rightly relegated to brackets or a margin or a footnote or taken out of your Bible because it was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, I've smashed some of your balloons, maybe, but I am not sorry to smash balloons that aren't divinely inspired. Obviously, you don't want to believe anything that is not part of the inspired Word of God. And so we can argue about whether this is inspired or not, and I've made my case tonight, and you think about that, and you take your decision. You say, Denison's all wet, all he's got is all this ancient manuscript testimony. That doesn't mean a hill of beans to me. Well, all I can say is you're invincibly ignorant. I'll pray for you. Or you get your little spade out and you go on an archaeological exhibition and you dig up the papyrus that, that I need to prove to me that it's older than either one of those, P66 or P75. But also, if we take this story away from you, if we rob you of this little incident, have we taken the Jesus of the New Testament away from you? Is there anything in this story which you don't know about Jesus from other stories about Jesus in the New Testament? In other words, is there anything unique here about Jesus that you lose? That Jesus is compassionate to sinners? You know that. You know that from the rest of the Gospels. That's his character. He came to save sinners. He's compassionate to them. So you don't lose that by taking this story away. Oh, we lose that little proverb, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, you can keep the proverb, Jesus don't claim it's inspired. So in other words, what crucial doctrine of your Christian faith hangs or falls on whether this story stays in or stays out? No, your faith is intact. You see, I haven't destroyed your faith at all. I've pricked a balloon, maybe. I've taken one of these favorite stories of this poor woman dragged in by her hair or whatever. Yes, she was a poor woman. But to catch her in the act, to catch her in the very act, look, the very act of adultery? Come on! Not only does it stink, it stinks so bad it smells like a put-up. An invention. A graphic detail to make the story look all the more poignant. All right. Well... I rest my case until further evidence comes from the defense, those that want to defend it. All right. Now, chapter 7 and 8 have defied a kind of neat structural outline so far, but at the bottom of that uh, handout on uh, chapter 7, you'll notice at the bottom of the page I have a little bracketed structural paradigm Chapter 7, verses 1 to 14, is a preliminary to the incidents of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus deciding to go up. And you'll notice in verses 1 to 9 that Galilee is featured with a focus on the brothers of Jesus, the Adelphoi, in verses 3 and 5. So verses 1 to 9 kind of hang together in that section. And then in verses 10 to 14, the word go up on a bino in uh, Greek in verse 10 and 14 is kind of like a little bracket around those two verses, 10 and 14. Then in 14, G- 
Jesus goes up to the temple. I've already pointed this out. And then in chapter 8, 59, Jesus goes out of the temple. So he goes up to the temple in 714. Therefore, 714 to 859 is a huge unit all of itself taking place at the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple at Jerusalem. Now, I want to suggest an irony here, and that is that when we have this little off-stage camera shot of Nicodemus before the Sanhedrin defending Jesus, we have a foreshadowing of a trial motif. That is, Jesus being placed on trial. In this case, off-camera in absentia. But this foreshadowing device is going to play large as we lead up to the actual trial of Jesus in John 18 and 19. What is therefore happening is, in the reaction to Jesus... At the Feast of Tabernacles, in both chapter 7 and chapter 8, we are setting the stage for what will ultimately become the final charge against him at his public trial before Pontius Pilate. Therefore, these two chapters are laying the foundation for this conflict, hostility, division, putting Jesus on trial, accusing him of being a false prophet, accusing him of being no prophet, accusing him of being a blasphemer. That's being set up here in chapter 7 by the arrangement of these uh, these frames, these uh, scenes in this narrative. Now we come to chapter 8. And the division over Jesus in 749 brings Nicodemus to his defense before the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus argues that Jesus has the right to a hearing, he has the right to due process, but Jesus has already been tried and convicted by the chief priests and Pharisees. As you can see, Nicodemus appeals for the fact that he shouldn't be condemned without a hearing. They've already condemned him. The witness in his defense, his own self-defense, neither of these has been heard. Christ has been tried and condemned in absentia at the end of chapter 7. But in chapter 8, Jesus turns the tables on his accusers. In chapter 8, Jesus places the unbelieving Jews on trial. Now notice what he does. In verses 8 to 12, he summons his witnesses. And then Jesus introduces the evidence from his witnesses in verses 21 to 30. Finally, Jesus brings his trial of his accusers to a close by cross-examining the prosecution. Verses 31 to 59. At issue is the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. The prosecution charges Jesus with bearing false witness. Against the background of this forensic setting, they proceed to demand, Who are you? Notice verse 25. And they demand that in an accusatorial tone. 
Finally, by way of answering their own accusation, they charge Christ with being of his father the devil, while they boast of their paternity from father Abraham. Christ clinches his defense by saying, before Abraham was epiphonic ego I am. Verse 58. Now, many commentators have argued for a five-fold dialogic pattern. By dialogic pattern, I mean a pattern of conversation. Dialogic pattern. They have argued for a five-fold dialogic pattern from 8, 12 to 59. They've suggested concentric parallelisms, chiasms, interrogative, indicative structures. None of these suggestions is, in my opinion, successful. In other words, John chapter 8 has thus far defied neat, clean patterning. Now let's begin by linking it to the same scene, same time, predecessor chapter, chapter 7, and the whole unit, putting the whole together, chapter 7 and 8, with a dialogue of accusation and defense in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, the entire unit lacking any self-evident structure. But at least we have got it in one location. So my suggestion for breaking down the units in chapter 8 is not a mere whimsy. There are two elements which, in my opinion, alert us to narrative or dialogic units in verses 12 to 59 of chapter 8. Now, follow me closely. The first is a narrative statement. The author of this gospel, John the Apostle, breaks all three of these dialogic units of this chapter with a non-dialogic narrative declaration. Notice, the concluding comment to the first section, verses 12 to 20... The concluding comment is verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. That's a non-dialogic narrative marker. Now, consider the concluding comment to the second section, verses 21 to 30. Look at verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Again, a non-dialogic statement narrating action, in this case faith, in response to Christ's defense. Now, finally, the concluding statement of the third section. Final verse of this trial sequence, verse 59 of chapter 8. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In these three dialogic units, there is no other non-dialogic remark, save verse 27, where the author explains Christ's remark. This is not a narrative marker. It's an editorial comment. So I am arguing for three units in John chapter 8, not five units, in part on the basis of three concluding narrative non-dialogic markers. Now, I say in part because I have more evidence in my own defense. Each of these three units contains an I am revelation. In fact, two of these three units contain dual I am declarations. 
since it is the identity of Jesus which is at issue in these dialogic exchanges, it is not surprising to find Christ's favorite self-designation crucial to each exchange. The first section, verses 12 to 20, contains dual theophonic self-affirmations. The ego eimi plus the predicate, a reflection of the theophonic name. Verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, recalling the light of the glory cloud which descended on Israel of old to give her light in the darkness. Jesus is announcing that he is the glory cloud light of the new Israel, a light and a glory which the darkness cannot overcome. Now, verse 18, Jesus says, I am the one witnessing. Once more, a theophonic declaration. The I am plus a predicate. Here, a predicate substantive, a predicate adjective, a participle complementing the verb to be. Now, the second dialogic unit, verses 21 to 30, also contains two I am assertions. Notice verse 24 and verse 28. Here the I am phrase stands alone, without a predicate. It is the epiphonic I am. It is the static I am. Here the I am is declarative. It is virtually equivalent to the Old Testament and synoptic Hebrew phrase, Anihu, I am he. My point is that Christ is appealing to the messianic identity projected by the Old Testament revelation. He is taking that messianic and prophetic identity upon his own lips. I am the Messiah, foretold by the law and the prophets. Significantly in verse 24, that messianic I am is connected to death. That is, the messianic I alone is able to turn away death for sin. In verse 28, the messianic motif is extended to the cross of Christ. The crucifixion of the Son of Man will reveal that he is the Messiah. Anihu, egoimi, I am he. Now, the third dialogic unit, and with this we'll close tonight. The third dialogic unit, verses 31 to 59, concludes with the most stunning the most ringing of the ego amis. Before Abraham was ego ami, I am. It is a clear affirmation of pre-existence. Though this phrase has the epiphonic form, that is, there's no predicate, it has a climactic, clinching, summary impact. In verse 58, it closes the dialogic unit. After this, I am, no more discussion, case closed, defense rests, divine self-affirmation proven, trial over, period. The relation of this I am to the generation of Abraham underscores the creator-creature distinction. Before Abraham became I am. Abraham was generated, begotten in time. I am not begotten as a creature, not generated as a creature, eternally self-existent. Jesus is making at the conclusion of these ego and me defenses 
a stunning claim, a startling claim to ontic deity. He places himself outside creature generation, outside creature begetting. His being is not dependent on the creature. His being is ontologically equal to God's being, the I am's being. I and the I am are one. Case closed. Discussion over. God's own self-defense in the person of his ontological son is proven QED. And we'll pick up there, Lord willing, next week and go on to chapters 9 and 10. Now, if you have any questions or comments, I'll be glad to attempt to respond. Yes, David. My Bible has the first one capitalized. <laughs> but only because it's probably the beginning of the sentence. Yeah, I don't I don't have any insight uh except to observe that I probably would stick with the lowercase his it's the fruit of what Christ uh releases inside that individual, although I'm not going to be greatly bothered if it is coming from Jesus himself. I think it's coming out of the Ezekiel corpus, though I don't know that it's a direct verbal uh, reflection on either the Masoretic or the Septuagint text, but it's in, it's in the sense of what Ezekiel is talking about, about the age of the water transformation, which is the new Messianic age. So I'm content with that, and I'm not bothered with uh, a missing exact proof text. David? Yes, it's ego me. It's one of the reasons the strong continuity is here. See you next week.